Okay, everybody, welcome in. We're gonna do a countdown, give you a chance to log on. Let me know where you're watching from. Welcome into the deep dive. Welcome into our study of Torah, everybody. Today we are discussing another basic human reality that finds itself all over the Bible, and particularly when it comes to Israel, there's real clarity with God's word on what they should be doing regarding the act of giving. Yes, today we're talking in part 14 of the Deep Dive, Wednesday night Bible study, 7.30 p.m. Welcome in, part 14. We're going to go with the Torah and the tithe. So if you're here for the first time, let me know you're here. Make sure you're hitting the like button, the subscribe button, the notification bell. Let me know that you appreciate this content. And we're going to get right to it. What do we mean by tithing? Well, tonight we're going to talk about the fact that it's more than just giving and it's more than just, you know, being generous. There's a principle in the Torah that I believe God establishes not just for the people of Israel in the ancient world, but for all of his people everywhere in the Christian church. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at how the text of the Torah inform and shape the rest of the Bible regarding giving and honoring the Lord and, and giving to others and being charitable, and then beyond just those laws and into the New Testament reality that we understand everything belongs to God and we are called to be generous people because of how God is totally generous toward us. So welcome in. Let's get started. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents... Here's the thing about giving. Giving is universally accepted as a good thing. Not everybody does it. I understand that. But it is pretty much universally accepted that you should give stuff away. It's kind of interesting because there's so much disagreement about so many other things the Bible commends where people say, well, I just don't agree with the Bible about that. But when it comes to giving, at least letting go of something of value in your life, most people agree that is a general good. So we're starting with that underlayment first here tonight on the deep dive. It's kind of interesting because when we come to the topic of giving, it's the one topic when Christians agree with everyone, or you could say when everyone agrees with Christians. For instance, atheism, Richard Dawkins, an Oxford biologist and noted atheist says, quote, let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Buddhism says, let's teach this triple truth to all, a generous heart, kind speech, and a life of service and compassion are the things which renew humanity. Confucianism, he who wishes to secure the good of others has already secured his own. Um, Hinduism says, they who give have all things, they who withhold have nothing. Or Islam, you shall never truly be righteous until you give in alms what you dearly cherish. And then Judaism, we're going to deal with that today because there's plenty of scriptures in the Torah that cover Judaism's ideals when it comes to giving. The point is this, giving is a universal good that should happen. And pretty much everyone agrees that it should, even people who don't. I think of the noted atheist and Princeton, Princeton professor, Peter Singer, who says that he seeks to give away 20 to 25% of his income every year simply because he knows that giving is good for you. Uh, many of you who watch this channel regularly know that I am a fan, although I disagree with him greatly, of Bill Maher, another atheist. He did a segment a couple of weeks ago on his show, Real Time, on the modern songs that kids are singing today. And he did a full expose on the problem with money and possessions becoming the centerpiece of modern music. In the old days, we used to sing about other people making us happy. Like, even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. Or the Beatles saying, can't buy me love. Or the Temptations, I don't need no money. I've got all the riches, baby, one man can claim. We used to find fulfillment. We used to find joy, satisfaction in the other. And today's modern music is dominated by self-interest, dominated by possessions. Lady Gaga sings, damn, I love the Jag, the Jet, and the Mansion. Cardi B sings, diamonds on my neck, I like boarding jets, but nothing in this world that I like more than checks. Or Bruno Mars, I want to be a millionaire, so blanking bad. And then the kids are more depressed than ever. 
Sad songs dominate the radio. People don't have a sense of purpose, a sense of fulfillment. They're lonely. They're isolated. They're more suicidal. Could it be that loving things and holding on and grabbing and getting all that you can is actually bad for you? The answer is yes. Everyone knows that we should be a giver. Everyone understands that giving is good for you. The problem is we're very reluctant to give. We're born selfish. A child's first favorite word is usually mine or no. We're ha we have to ta be taught to share. We have to be commended and commanded by our parents to let go of things, to give things away, to let others play with our toys. And then we have to ask this simple question. When it comes to giving, how should we do it? Because I'll be the first to confess I have learned the hard way. You shouldn't always just give to anyone. And there are some versions of bad giving. Yes, there are. I know, I know there are some people that are going to disagree with me about that, but I have seen it with my own two eyes. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been burned by putting your money where you shouldn't have it go? Have you ever given money to someone and then watched them misuse it or perhaps buy drugs or alcohol with it and further exacerbate serious problems in their life? And then beyond just managing money and giving and stewardship, have you ever bought something that you shouldn't have purchased, invested in a business that went bankrupt, gave to a guy on a street with a cardboard sign knowing full well that he was probably not going to use it for good purposes in his life? And, uh, and uh, now his historical philosopher, Immanuel Kant, was opposed to giving to beggars altogether because he says it demeaned the human person way too much and it felt messy. In other words, sometimes we can be givers, but not givers in a good way. This is why the Torah pulls the reins on our natural inclination to just give randomly and says, wait a second, let's establish some principles, some guardrails, if you will, for how God's people should rightly give. Because everyone knows they should be a giver, but how we give and what we give and when we give, and most importantly, how much we give matters to God. Well, it all starts with a word, a five-letter word that not many Christians love. It's called the tithe. Now, this is a very hot topic in church life because a lot of people immediately want to check out when the pastor starts talking about tithe. But let's examine the Old Testament scriptures. That's what they're there for, so that we can understand how God shapes Israel and ultimately teaches the rest of his people beyond Israel in the new covenant. Primarily speaking, the tithe refers to one-tenth or a tenth part. The literal word masar in Hebrew is one-tenth. So when we speak of the tithe, we are talking about one-tenth of whatever it is. Now, when it comes to the tithe, again, people have all kinds of issues with this word, and I want to put these questions out there for you so we can examine them. And in case you don't want to check out this video any further, you can have these questions up front because this is what we're going to be covering. Number one, what did the Israelites actually bring to God in terms of money or resources or possessions? What was their tithe? Number two, what was their motivation to be? Because God doesn't just want us to let stuff go. He wants our hearts to be in the right place. And yes, even in the Old Testament, he wanted their hearts to be in the right place. Number three, what did Jesus say about the tithe? And a lot of Christians say, well, he never mentioned it. And that's not true. Then number four, how does this apply to us, New Testament, New Covenant believers, when it comes to our money and our giving? Finally, should we tithe? Should we do less? Are we entitled to do less? Or should we do more? Are we compelled to do more as God's new covenant people compared to God's old covenant people? That's on the docket for tonight. That's where we're going. Those are the questions. Let's get started. I want to look at the scenes. I want to look at how scripture unpacks the tithe right from the beginning. Now, obviously, many people say this. Oh, the tithe, that's an Old Testament principle, and it's tied to the law. So Christians are freed from the law. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. So therefore, Christ is the end of tithing, right? Well, that's actually not true. The fact of the matter is, is that tithing existed well before the law. A case could be made that the first tither was Abel, who gave the firstborn of his flocks to God. God looked upon it with acceptance and reverence. But on Esau, uh, on, on his brother, um, uh, who is it? Abel and Cain. <laughs> but his brother Cain looked upon 
was his gift was looked upon with great disdain. And people don't realize that what it says about Cain's giving is that he gave in the course of time, and Abel gave of the firstborn of his flocks. It's not hard to see what the text is showing us, that when we give to God first, it's blessed and accepted. Past that story about Abel and Cain, we get to Abraham, who I call God's first tither. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There it is right there, the word masar in Hebrew, or tenth. So this passage exists in a historical moment where Abram is called on to rescue Lot, who had been stolen during this during this international conflict between five kings and two other kings. And the two kings that Abraham, or Abram at this point, actually uh, help out are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of ironic, because Lot was living in Sodom, and so Lot was Abram's nephew, and Lot was caught up in the battle and was taken captive, and so Abram musters his 318 men, and he goes into the battle. God gives him victory. And then after the victory, he comes home from the war, and Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, shows up and blesses Abram. He blesses him with a heavenly blessing. Now, Hebrews will get to this later on. Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. Melchizedek has a, uh, is a two-part name, uh, king and peace. He, he is a Melchizedek, king, Melchizedek refers to being a king, and he is the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So this is a picture of Christ. He's also a priest, just like Christ is our great high priest. And Abram gives him a tenth. So three thoughts right off the bat about this text. Number one, tithing is not part of the law code. It actually came well before the law code. Not a single law has been given to Israel yet, and this is part of Abram's life. It's part of the Abrahamic blessing. So those who make the argument that tithing is part of the law are mistaken. It was part of Abram's lifestyle. Second point, tithing starts with Abram after he's victorious over his enemies. In other words, God gives him victory, and Abram gives God a tenth. Abram responds with blessing toward God because he realized that what God had blessed him with was beyond what he could imagine. With 318 men, he beats back five kings. It's an amazing victory, and Abram understands that he's been miraculously delivered by God. Therefore, God gets his first offering. And then number three, tithing stands in contrast to the offer of the king of Sodom. Now, listen to this. In between... This moment, and uh, or Abram in this moment, stands in between two kings, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who is a picture of Christ, and the king of Sodom, who is a picture of this world. Look with me here at, Ab at Genesis chapter 14, verse 21. It says, right after Abram's interaction with Melchizedek, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, this is a golden opportunity for Abram to benefit off of helping out the king of Sodom. But notice Abram's reaction. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. What's the point? The point is simple. Abram is saying, I am not going to let wicked people be my source. I am not going to let unrighteous leaders be my source. I know that God is the one who can bless me. And notice the phrase, I have lifted up my hand. In other words, I took a vow. I promised to God that I am not going to bank my financial future on what this world can do for me. They may try to make me align with them, but my heart is already settled that God, possessor of heaven and earth, the one who has more than enough resources to supply my needs is the one that I'm going to rely on financially. You see, at the end of the day, what Abram does is he trusts God for who God is and what God has rather than the system and the powerful players in the world. And how much more do we need to do just that? Well, you have Abraham, who has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's born first. We know the story. Um, Esau's born first, and, and we know this story. Jacob is the heel grasper holding on to Esau as he comes out of his mother's womb. And Jacob is a questionable fellow. Jacob is a deceiver. His name actually means deceiver or heel grasper. 
And all along his life, he's not a good guy. He tricks his starving brother into selling his birthright. He tricks his old father, blind old father, out of giving him the firstborn blessing. And when he's caught, when Esau wants to kill him, he runs away. Jacob is not an ideal human. In fact, he's the exact opposite of everything that you would consider admirable. But when he runs from his brother Esau, who wants to kill him, the scripture says that he leaves with nothing. He's so broke that he comes to a place late in the night and he lays down and he uses a pillow for a rock. Do you know why he used a pillow for a rock? Because he had nothing else. And in that moment, God shows up in this unworthy man's life. This is a picture of grace, by the way. He has a dream of a ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending and the Lord is standing over him and he promises to bless him and be with them and to, and to protect him and then to bring him back to the very land that he was leaving. This is God's grace for undeserved sinners right on the front page of the Bible in Genesis 28. Well, after this moment, Jacob wakes up and he says a vow to God, Genesis 28 verse 20, it says, if God will be with me and keep me in the way that I will go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, Jacob says, I will give a full tenth, again, Massar, tithe to you. This is Jacob, the undeserving brother, getting God's blessing and then returning that blessing one tenth to God. Now, of course, it looks questionable even in the way that he does this. If, God, you will do this, then I will give you a tenth. And some people don't take that as a real heartfelt uh, action on Jacob's behalf. But let's talk about Jacob again, the deceiver, the heel grasper, the guy, the opportunist who will do whatever it takes to put himself ahead. Well, at least it's a movement in the right direction to say, if God, in fact, does live up to what he said he would do for me, then I will, in fact, give him one-tenth of my income. Thus far in the narrative, we are seeing that God's best people, Abram, uh, Jacob, and way back all the way to Abel, are people who put God first financially. So that's scene number two. Then we can fast forward into the law. Now we are finally coming to the place where tithing is regarded, or at least stipulated, in the ancient Mosaic law code. This brings me to scene three, the law code regarding tithing. Leviticus chapter 27. It says in verse 30, uh, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal all, of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So notice here a couple of things. Number one, this is an agricultural farming community, and they were to bring the firstborn of their flocks to the Lord. And in one-tenth of everything that they increased was to be brought to the Lord and given to the Lord as holy. Now, now notice, given to the Lord. Now, if you wanted to redeem a herd or a flock, say, I don't want to give that. Well, you can redeem it with other things, but you had to add a fifth to that gift to redeem the animal that you didn't want to lose because you needed it. But ultimately, this is the Lord's tithe. It is 10%. What's the deal here? Think of this tithe in terms of national taxes, federal taxes. These things were used in support of the nation as a whole. Now, I believe in taxes. Romans 13 says we should pay taxes. Jesus talked about give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But I also believe in limited government. I believe that taxes should support a government that protects the people and provides community services for the people. But taxes shouldn't be so high that it drains the people and weakens the people and stifles innovation and motivation and ultimately leads to the government supporting its citizens. That's an unhealthy tax system. God's system is pretty fair. 10% goes to the, king, to the nation. 10% to support your leaders, your industry, your government, protection from God, all rooted in the law code of tithing. Beyond the tithe to the government, there was the Levite's tithe. In this case, think more about church tithe. So you gave 10% to the government, and then God said you gave 10% to the temple or to the temple services. 
This is in Deuteronomy 14, 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before the Lord your God in the place that he would choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and your firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And then later, later on, he says, and if the way is too long for you so that you are unable to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money. In other words, you shall exchange it. You shall bind it up in your hand. You'll go to the place the Lord your God chooses because some Israelites would have lived a long way from the temple so they can exchange it for money. Money's easier to carry. Come to the temple and then spend your money there on whatever you desire. This is in verse 26 of the same chapter. And he says, whether on money or whatever you desire, oxen, sheep, wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And then this verse is not on the screen as well, but it says, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So notice when it comes to the tithe here, the 10% goes to the house of God, but they also eat it and the Levites eat it with them. So the Levites were the administrators of the word of God, the temple sacrificial system, and they benefited from the tithes of the people as they've come to worship in the temple. This is a picture of church tithes. You give your tithes to the church, the church gives you spiritual food. So when you came as an Israelite into the temple and you had Levites working there, they didn't own land, they weren't allowed to, the Lord was their portion, but they had to eat, they had to survive. How did they do that? They ate the food that was brought by the people of Israel, and by the way, they ate with their priests. This is a beautiful picture of how community should be shaped in the local church. Pastors and people knowing each other, eating together, enjoying God's bounty together, and yes, funded by the people that are in the pews to pay the salaries and support the men who are preaching and caring for the flock, and we'll get to that later in the New Testament. But think about the Levi's tithe, 10% to the church. So you have 10% the Lord's tithe to the government, to the nation, 10% to the church, and then there was a third tithe in the Levitical system or in the, in the law system. This was called the benevolent tithe. And it would happen one-tenth percent every, one-tenth percent, one-tenth every third year. So break one-tenth into thirds, you're about, and it's one of those infinite numbers, 3.3333333, and eventually you have to say four to one of those numbers to add up to 10. This is basically 3% of your income went to the poor, the stranger, the sojourner. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the father of this, and the widow who are in your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands, of your hands that you do. So again, don't mistake the fact that the Levites eat this as they are to be poor. That's not what God is saying. They are, again, the administrators of the temple sacrifices and system. So they join you in eating with the stranger and the sojourner and the fatherless and the poor, and you give these things to those who cannot do for themselves. Now think about that number, 3%. An amazingly small number considering how much of our federal budget is given toward helping people with food stamps and welfare assistance and all kinds of other programs to help the uh, financially disadvantaged. God says 3%. Our government bloats its federal budget by throwing money at poverty and trying to solve the problem. And literally, since the war on poverty began under the Johnson administration, hardly anything has changed in regards to the percentage of poor people within our nation. It kind of begs the question, is throwing more money at the problem going to ever fix the problem? I would suggest no. Jesus and Deuteronomy chapter 15 both say there's always going to be poor in the land. We should help them. We should be generous. But there does come a point when helping people by giving them money is counterproductive. It's not beneficial. So God puts a guardrail on Israel. And he says, you're not going to give 10% away to the poor. You're not going to give 5%. You're going to give 3%. Oh, and by the way, you're only going to do this once every three years in the amount of 10% over those three years, which ends up becoming 3% per year. So this is the benevolent tithe, the 
the tithe for the poor. There's more on this, by the way. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12 says, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, and this is not on the screen, I'll just read it for you, I have removed the sacred portion of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten the tithe while I was in mourning or removed it, removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. And then this is on the screen again, verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice how God puts the stipulations of blessing on a generous tithing system. 10% to God or the nation, 10% to the church and the worship environment, 3% to the poor, and then you can expect, God says, you can expect that God will bless you. Another thing about the benevolent tithe is that it does, again, support the Levites who are in charge of the sacrificial system. Numbers chapter 18, verse 21 states this, to the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear their sin and die. But the Israelites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout all your generations and among the peoples of Israel. They shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall not have an inheritance among the people of Israel. Think about the Levites in this case. In an agricultural system where you basically make money by having land, God says this one tribe, one out of 12, is going to be restricted from owning land, and they are going to be beneficiaries of the tithes of the land that comes into the temple, that comes into the sacrificial system. A case could be made, and this is very plausible, that the best fed people in ancient Israel were the Levites. They were beyond blessed because they were constantly eating the sacrifices of the Lord's people. They were constantly receiving more benefits as God's people came to worship. But that did not, but that did not exclude them from being in the process of tithing. Let me bring up another passage of scripture regarding the, benef- the, the benevolent tithe or the tithe to the Levites. Numbers chapter 18, verse 25 said, t- says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were, a grain, were the grain of the threshing floor, and as the fullness of the wine press, so you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it, you shall give to the Lord, give the Lord's contribution to Aaron, the priest. So here's what the Levites had to do. They received the tithes, but they then tithed on the tithe they received. Now, if we translate, to this, translate this to the New Covenant and modern church living or New Testament church standards, This absolutely eliminates the idea that God's new covenant ministers, i.e. pastors or teachers, are exempt from tithing themselves. If they receive tithes, they are also to tithe on those tithes. By the way, I also believe that this principle applies to churches as a whole. If churches, which are modern-day mini Levitical, local Levitical, you know, systems of worship, connecting people to God and, and people to each other, if they benefit from the tithes of the people, That church should offer a tithe to the Lord beyond themselves. You could call it a tithe of the tithe. So these are the stipulations that God put down for Israel. And I want to summarize the three tithes as follows. Firstly, they gave 10% of their income to the governmental structure. How great would it be to give 10% of your income only to the government? 10% to their worship center. And then 3% to the poor and distressed. Friends, I consider this stipulation, these numbers, these fact, these figures, to probably be some of the most common sense numbers that we could come up with. In many states in our country right now, the tax system basically takes almost 50% of someone's salary, or even above that in some cases, depending on the tax structure of that particular state. How much more do we have to tax people before we realize that overtaxation does not actually help many, many people. In fact, in some of the most taxed burdened states, 
You have some of the greatest numbers of homelessness and, uh, and the greatest amount of income inequality in the country. It's kind of showing us again and again in our modern age that throwing money at people and taking from some and giving it to others does not solve the problem that we deal with on a regular basis. That is, that some people need help, genuinely need help, but most people need to work and to supply their own needs and to give and to support the community, to support worship, and to bless those who are disadvantaged. God mapped this out to the people of Israel, and he expected these numbers to never change. Kind of interesting considering our modern tax codes. But when it came to ancient Israel, it was way more than just bringing the tithe to the house of God. You see, God wanted them to bring the tithe with a generous heart, with a glad heart. In fact, that's exactly how they do it when they come out of Egypt. Because the first thing that they are called on to do after they come out of Egypt is to start preparing to build the temple, the tabernacle, where their Levitical priesthood system would bring them to God, offer sacrifices, and create community. There's a passage in Exodus chapter 36, verse 2, where Moses calls Bezael and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, every, everyone whose heart stirred him to come to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, listen to this, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from, from giving or for, from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do the work and more. In other words, God was like, enough, you've given plenty. What do you see here? A heart to give, a generosity. A formerly enslaved people are now set free by their God. And what you see in their reality is a heart released from possessions. There's a couple of reasons why. Number one, again, they were dramatically delivered from slavery for 400 years. They were dramatically delivered through signs and wonders. They saw that God owned creation. God could do whatever he wanted. He can split seas. He can darken the sun. He can make locusts appear out of nowhere. He can turn rivers into blood. It was obvious that their God could do anything with creation, and so they had no fear. This is a picture for you, Christian. Do you believe that God can do almost, not, not almost, God can do anything for you? He can bless you beyond your wildest imagination. He owns everything. And if you are his, he will always provide exceedingly for you in generous ways. But secondly, the question has to be asked, where did Israel get those things? Where did Israel, these, these former slaves, get the tithes to bring to the sanctuary? The answer is, they got it when they were delivered through the death of the firstborn or the 10th plague. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33 states this. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was unleavened and their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, God took the wealth of the wicked nation that had enslaved them and gave it to them. The scripture says in Proverbs that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Honestly, Christian, what do you have to fear? If God is able to deliver your soul, not from enslavement to some man, but enslavement to the sin nature, enslavement to the God of this world, enslavement to hell and death. If God can take care of your spiritual life and your eternal life, and you're trusting him to bring you to heaven, how can you not trust him with your material needs here on this earth? How can you not look at everything in your life and say, and not say, this is from God, and he is able to supply all my needs according to his riches and glory, and I never have to worry about possessions because my Father will always provide for me. Ultimately, too many Christians live as if they're still slaves. They're still subjected to the Egyptians. They're still lost in sin, and they have to fight for everything that they get, and they have to grab and keep and hold and store. 
When Jesus showed up, he said very clearly, your father delights to give you the kingdom of heaven. Ask, you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be open to you. If your fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your father give good things to those who ask him? In the scriptures, we are consistently reminded that the eternal work of our salvation, a work that we are trusting God to complete when we go from this life to the next, is sealed and finished in Christ Jesus, and no man can pluck us from his hand. How much more so can we take God at his word about our day-to-day needs and even some of our wants to live in gratitude for all that he gives us so generously? See, the people of Israel are a picture for us. He has delivered us. He will sustain us. And we are called to graciously give back our income to his house, to the poor, of course, to the government, and rejoice in the goodness of God. We must give with a great heart, a good heart, a generous heart. Fast forward to scene number four. The Israelites have an incredible kingdom under King Solomon. Now we did this in the Kings of Compromise. And little by little, over 500 years, they disintegrate, they deteriorate spiritually and morally. And eventually God hands them over to the Babylonians, the Assyrians first, then the Babylonians. They are in exile for 70 years. God raises up a king in Persia named Cyrus. Cyrus says, Jews, go back home, build your temple. And they get the opportunity to go build the temple of Jerusalem once again. In that time, there's this great outflow again of generosity. And Nehemiah talks about this and Ezra as well. And they contribute to the building of the temple and they contribute to the building of the walls. And everybody puts their hands to work to make sure that the kingdom can be reborn again. But it doesn't take long. And eventually they deteriorate again because the heart of man is the heart of man and it's always a part, it's part of our problem. We cannot change ourselves. The nation starts to decline morally, spiritually, in relationship to God. And so God raises up a prophet named Malachi. He is the final prophet in the Old Testament canon, the final book in the Old Testament. And his opening words are, hey, you honor your government. How about honoring God? And what happened was they weren't honoring him. That's scene chapter scene four in our study, the returned exiles who were backslidden. Malachi chapter one, verse eight. God says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So notice they were giving their taxes, but they weren't giving to their God. They weren't giving the tithes for the worship of God in fellowship and community with each other. Verse 14 of the same chapter, he says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, you've got to honor me in your giving. Israel is taught in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Those who, who honor God will be honored, and those who despise him would be lightly esteemed. In other words, if we honor God with our finances, he honors us back in blessing and increase. Sadly, Israel had to learn this lesson all over again, and Malachi was the man for God's timing to rebuke the nation and call them back to the tithe. This is probably the most famous passage of tithing that you ever heard, Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, and I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord. A couple of things here in this text, and we got to look at this. God says, bring. You don't give the tithe because the tithe doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You're just bringing it back to him. He also says, bring the full tenth. It could have been that many of the Israelites were bringing 1% or 2% or maybe just almost a tenth. God says, no, this principle is clear. The full tenth comes into the, what? The storehouse. We don't give God anything. He owns everything. His temple, his house of worship is a storehouse so that there would be food in his house. In other words, when we bring the tithes to the house of God, there is food for God's people. In our case, spiritual food and sometimes material food. But in Israel's case, material food. Then God says something absolutely astonishing. Put me to the test. See if this won't work. 
It's the one place in scripture where God says, I want you to test me on this. I want you to call me out on this passage of scripture and see if it doesn't work. And he says, I'll pour out such a blessing. There's no more need. And then my favorite part of the verse, I will rebuke the devourer for you. Hey, how many know there's a bunch of devourers out there? You've got potential storm damage to your house, to your car, to your loved ones. You've got potential fraudulent claims on your life, identity theft. You've got people who will rob you of your money, people who will steal from you, rip you off in a business transaction. There are innumerable opportunities for the modern day devourers to take what God has given you. Here God says, if you honor me with the tithe to ancient people in Israel, I will rebuke the things that can destroy your fields, your harvest, and your income. And you will have supernatural protection from Almighty God. Simply put, three points from Malachi 3.10 that I think Christians need to be very aware of. The tithe blessed the house of God with food. The tithe led to heavenly blessings. God would open up the windows of heaven. And number three, the tithe would bring God's protection from disaster. I don't know about you, but I want God rebuking the devourers in my life. I want, I want God making sure that I'm not going to lose on this purchase or I'm not going to lose on this plan for my children or for my family or for my home. You say, well, that sounds like we have to give in order to make sure that we get. Well, God clearly teaches us in the scriptures. If you give, it will be given back to you. Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven so that you will have them and they can't be stolen from and they can't be destroyed and Moths and rust cannot destroy. God, Jesus is pretty clear in the New Testament again and again that God will bless and prosper and protect those who catch his heart when it comes to giving and generosity. So I have no problem telling you or believing that, yeah, when we honor God financially with our tithes, he absolutely honors our life. I have testimony after testimony in my own life of ways that God protected me financially things that could have been serious potential disasters in my life. And God protected me. My wife and I regularly take time laughing about things when we were broke and things when we were moderately uh, blessed and now very blessed. And we look and we say, how did God protect us in all those ways? We have not experienced so many things that other people have experienced, sad to say for them. We have seen God protect us supernaturally from financial distress. I could go on a list and I hesitate to do so because if I started to talk about these things, some people, because they're immature and unspiritual, would have a problem with some of the things that we have seen happen in our life. Some people are of the ideal that pastors and ministers should be absolutely dirt broke or they should just be lower class in the economic system. I don't see that in God's word, and we're going to get that to that in the New Testament, but I don't believe it at all because God is a good and generous father. And when we honor him, he honors us. Let's move to the New Testament because this is an important question. Did Jesus commend the tithe? Now, the problem is simply this. Jesus was ministering to a group of people who had learned the mistakes of, gen of Malachi's generation. We need to honor God on the tithe. The problem was they went and got legalistic about it. They decided that the tithe was the secret code to a good life, and a lot of Christians are there. But what they unfortunately did was they forgot about the poor, they forgot about the disenfranchised, they forgot about the people who needed their help financially and spiritually. So when Jesus talks about the tithe, he's talking to a group of people who were legalistic about the tithe, but very disobedient about anything beyond the tithe. Jesus was ministering to people who were devout about the technical aspects of the law, but disconnected to the heart of God's law. So the first thing we see is that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for being meticulous about tithing herbs when neglecting more important matters of the law, like justice and the love of God. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus excoriates the Pharisees and the scribes again and again and again, talking about their empty religion, their hypocrisy, the way that they only care about themselves and their notoriety and their importance in their community. Skipping all the way down to verse 23, Jesus actually calls them out on the tithe. This is the only phrase, both in Matthew 23 and in Luke 11, where Jesus talks about the tithe. He says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you do what Malachi said to do, 
You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. Can you just look with me very clearly there? And Luke chapter 11, verse 42 says the same thing. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In both texts, Jesus mentions that, yes, you should tithe the mint, the rue, and every herb. These are agricultural people. Of course, you should tithe what God gives you financially. But your problem is, you don't care about people. You don't see people the way God sees people. All you care about is tithing for your own spiritual benefit because you look important in the eyes of others. You look generous to God and you don't care about people. There is a form of religious or legalistic tithing that does not yield the blessing of God. And we see that here in the New Testament when it comes to the Pharisees, and we have to avoid that as New Testament believers. In other words, tithing should not become this legalistic kind of, you know, decoder ring key to get the goodies from heaven. No, it should be an activity that we participate in that teaches us to be generous in all things, not just toward the church, but toward people who are genuinely in need of our help. And it may not be financial need. It may just be love, community, fellowship, care, support. In other words, don't be so ritualistic about what you believe are the secret, obedient ways to get the goodies from God so that you ignore the thing that's most precious to God, people and the community of God. There's another parable where Jesus calls out the, tax collect the Pharisee in view of the tax collector. The Pharisee goes to the temple and he prays about himself and he says, I tithe, I fast, I give my tithe. But the tax collector only stands afar off and beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And later Jesus says, the, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, goes home justified. Again, these are the texts where Jesus mentions tithing and it is in light of the fact that while they had learned the lesson of Malachi, honoring God with the tithe, they had failed to receive the heart of the law, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Finally, in the New Testament, we go all the way back to Abram and Melchizedek because Hebrews is very clear that Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. Hebrews chapter five, 7, verse 5 says, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from descent who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abram, Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that, he, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one of whom is testified that he lives. One might also even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Again, the text is showing us that Melchizedek, a type of Christ, received tithes from Abraham. This is transmitted into the new covenant that through the true Christ, the real Christ, the Christ that we worship and serve and pray and praise and worship should receive tithes from God's people who are also descended from Abraham. So what happens in the New Testament regarding the church? We've talked about the Old Testament, the Torah. We've talked about the prophets in Malachi. We've talked about Jesus and what he spoke about in his generation to ritualistic people regarding the tithe. What happens when the church begins? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls. The people start proclaiming the goodness and the glory of God. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. 3,000 people are saved. What happens? Does the church practice tithing? Well, guess what, friend? They do way more than tithing. <laughs> Forget about 10%. Forget about 23%. Forget about all those numbers from the other. That's out the window. The Holy Spirit so moves upon the people. Acts chapter 2, 20, 45 says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all <coughs> as he had need. Or Acts chapter 4, verse 34, just two verses later. I'm sorry, two chapters later. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Then look at this phenomenal passage. Remember I told you that the Levites were not allowed to own land under the Old Covenant? Look at how the work of the Holy Spirit moves a Levite to get back to his Levitical roots. Verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, 
a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, the Holy Spirit so worked in this Levite that he actually went back to obedience of the law and gave away his land so that he might live truly as a Levite in Israel because the Holy Spirit had taken hold of his heart and God's law was written there. It's incredible to see how when the Holy Spirit takes ownership of people in the New Testament, immediately they lose a sense of ownership of all they possess. How about for you? Do you still look at your life as if it's yours? Your things as if it's yours? Your children as if they're yours? Or do you look at your life as a gift from God and everything that you have is what he has deemed appropriate for you to receive. What if you lived that way? And what if you were generous with it? And what if you, instead of whining about or comparing yourself to other people's possessions, income, and lifestyle, you said, thank you, Father, for what you've given me. How can I use what I have to live up to, not the Levitical law or the Mosaic law, but to the law of Christ with a generous heart? The church does far more than this, by the way. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul says to the Ephesians, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself it is more said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then Paul spends a majority of his time in the book of Acts traveling around the, the Gentile world and raising funds from those churches to support the church in, Jer in Jerusalem that had undergone a financial hardship. He goes and he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he talks about the Macedonians' generosity. These are Gentiles who received Christ and became generous. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed, look at this, in a wealth of generosity. How do people in a severe test of affliction and in extreme poverty, overflow with a wealth of generosity because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. For they gave, Paul says, according to their means, and look at this, and as I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, nobody begged them. He says, they begged us for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints. Friends, make no mistake. The new covenant does not take us back to giving less or equivalent. The new covenant brings us forward to being longing to give, generous in spirit. We desire to share what God has given us. Why? Because our hearts have been changed in regards to all the ways that God has blessed us, to everything about our lives. If he saved us from hell, death, and the grave, what do we have to fear in this life? But I understand there are some of you listening right now, and this is your, this is your statement. I just don't want to tithe. Pastor, I just don't want to do it. Let me tell you something. That's up to you. But let me explain. You are an outlier in Scripture. In Scripture, when people got saved, they got generous. When people met the Lord, they changed how they saw money. Zacchaeus meets the Lord in one meeting in Luke chapter 19 and immediately turns into a generous giver, giving away half his possessions and repaying anybody else that he defrauded four times what he defrauded them of. Money and possessions change in relation to your heart when your heart is in the hand of God. And it's completely up to you, modern Christians. Nobody's gonna force you to tithe. You can come to any church anywhere in America and show up and give nothing and pay nothing and do nothing, and receive all the benefits of that tithe, of that church, sorry. Receive all the benefits of that church, such as words of comfort, hope, and healing from the Word of God, community and fellowship from Christians who genuinely try to love people more often than not. You can receive child care. You can receive uh, helps if you need help. Many churches are benevolent and caring and will do something financially to help those who are struggling. I know this from experience, and I've been part of those solutions myself. It's up to you whether, you not, whether or not you want to tithe. But let me just say something about this in regards to your attitude. If you're not a tither, you're a taker, because someone's paying for those things. 
that building that you sit in that's air conditioned, someone's paying for that. That child care that you have available to you, someone's paying for that as well. The lights are on, the air conditioning's working, the heat is pumping. Someone is paying for it. There is no such thing as some heavenly bank account that just kind of falls into a church's office in the middle of the week. Someone believes God is worthy of giving to his kingdom, to his church, to empower his church, to bring spiritual blessings to other people. The church will be funded whether or not you, you give, and God will always provide. I have been a pastor for over 25 years. I have seen the church go through good times financially and very challenging times financially. In fact, we're coming out of a challenging time and into a good time right now as a church. I can see it in our financial statements. And every time I thought well, we were not gonna make it, God came through supernaturally. As a way of reminding me, Tim, this house is my house, not yours. And I will take care of it and it will be funded. And I always like to say to people who don't wanna tithe or they get mad at me and they say, you're, you're talking about money, I'm leaving the church. I always say, so you don't wanna give and you wanna leave. You understand that that's not actually financially going to harm the church. That might not sound very pastoral or very kind, but it is true. Imagine if I went to McDonald's and I said, I want my McDonald's burger for free. And if you don't give me my McDonald's burger for free, I'm going to leave. And if they say, we don't do that, sir, and I leave, they don't lose anything in that equation. Someone needs to pay for the burgers. Someone needs to provide for the needs of that facility to make sure it can keep doing what it's doing. Amazingly, so many Christians are far more committed to paying McDonald's what they're worth, but not giving to God what he's worth. The final thing that I want to say is this. If you don't tithe, you'll never see the provision and protection of heaven. Now understand the word tithe. Back to Malachi 3.10. The whole tithe. And I want to teach it this way. It's a floor, not a ceiling. It's a floor, not a ceiling. In other words, it's a starting place. It's where you should start seeing God's faithfulness in your life. Bring the whole tithe. I have a friend who also works with me here at the church, and he was going through a very bad season financially. And he was about to lose his business that he does on the side. He also bought a house. His wife's family moved in from, with them, and he decided to stop, uh, I'm sorry, his, his business that he had on the side started to, decided to stop paying him. He was in dire financial straits. He prayed, he sought God, he fasted. He said a miracle came. His previous sponsor rehired him and signed a contract for six months, paying him $7,000 a month, more than enough to cover his financial needs and get him out of debt. Then he said, Lord, I have to change. And what he realized was that although he was tithing on the part-time income that the church was paying him, he was not tithing on his private business. And he realized it wasn't right. So he's changed his heart. God, this is your business. I'm gonna bring the tithe of this private business that I do on the side to your house and not just tithe on the income that I make from the church. I said, you hit it, man. You got it. You gotta honor God. He will honor you. He will protect you. He will rebuke the devourer in your life. This is how God works again and again. The scripture says one, one more thing about tithing and giving. And, and, I, and I love this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies, look at this line. This is so important. He who supplies seed to who? To sowers, if you know how to sow, God says, I'm giving you seed. And he also supplies bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So he doesn't just give for your sake to have, he gives, your seed, he gives you seed for sowing. He increases the harvest of your righteousness. You grow in faith. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. In other words, God pours into your life financial blessing so that financial blessing can come out of your life. You become a channel, a river, not a reservoir of God's richness in and through you. He says this will produce thanksgiving to God. Let me just say one thing about 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that a lot of Christians miss. Paul is not talking about tithing. He's talking about giving beyond the tithe. 
He's talking about that church in Macedonia out of extreme poverty, welled up with generosity and gave beyond what they were able. And they begged to do it. What were they giving to? They were giving to the poor church in Jerusalem that had gone through famine and needed financial assistance. And so Paul says, listen, you, you Gentiles have benefited from the Jewish salvation, salvation message through Jesus. It's time to pour back into the material blessings because they are the root of your faith. And those principles of giving as you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly, God loves a cheerful giver, decide what you want to give. That's not tithing. That's benevolence. That's giving beyond the tithe to people who need it. Paul says about the Macedonians, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, he says, they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Here's what, he, here's what he's saying. He's saying the Macedonians did not just give uh, to the poor churches in Jerusalem, they gave first to the Lord. They provided the needs of their local assembly, and then they gave to Paul and his missionary team to bring back to Jerusalem to supply the needs of a struggling church. Just make sure that you understand that that passage of 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 is not talking about tithing. That's not, you get to decide what the tithe is. That is a principle of giving beyond the tithe to your local church. And I believe God blesses you and prospers you as you do so. There are plenty of scriptures that talk about the fact that tithing should support the local ministry. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, this is 1 Corinthians now, chapter 9. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not have it even more? Nevertheless, we have not made this use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put up an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In other words, pastors and ministers should reap a material harvest as they increase the spiritual righteousness of their congregations. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word of God share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. In other words, Paul says, if you've received spiritual benefit from the local church, you should be supplying the material benefit to those who help provide that for you. By the way, this is a way that you sow to the Spirit. This is a way that you sow to the things of God's work in your life. If you only give to material things in this life, you will reap from those things corruption. But if you give to the things of the Spirit, you will reap eternal life, spiritual blessing. And finally, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, let the elders who rule be considered well worthy of double honor. The word honor is time or timeis in Greek. Time means com compensation. It's another word for money. Think of the word honorarium. So let the elders, these are pastors, who rule well, be considered worthy of double pay. Pay them and pay them well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. He goes back to the law to reference pastors being paid well by their congregation. In the old days, and I remember this from my uh, upbringing, I was raised in an Italian Pentecostal church, and the old board members used to say, Pastor, we're going to make sure that God keeps you spiritual and we'll keep you poor. In other words, the way to be spiritual is to be poor. And that's just not true. God is a generous God. He's a good giver. He is a gracious father. He is a gracious giving father. And he wants you as his people to be gracious and give as well. Finally, let me say, giving is good for you. We've already talked about the fact that every religion and even irreligious people believe that giving is good for you. If you don't give away what you have, you're going to live a very melancholy, sad, depressing life. There's a book that I would counsel you to read written by Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson. These are, I believe, two Catholics. I know Christian Smith is one, but the book is titled The Paradox of Generosity, and they say in this book, quote, Americans who do not give away 10% of their income run the significant risk of ending up less happy than they might have otherwise been. In fact, as a group, they are less happy. So whatever Americans lose by giving away 10% of their income is offset by the greater likelihood of being happier in life. Rather than leaving generous people on the short end of an unequal bargain, practices of generosity are actually likely instead to provide generous givers with essential goods in life, happiness, health, and purpose, which money and time simply cannot buy. That is an empirical fact, 
well worth knowing. In other words, generous people live very good lives. I have generous friends. Do you have one? The amazing thing about generous people is they naturally have friends because everybody wants generous people in their lives. If you have a choice between a generous friend and a non-generous friend, which one are you going to choose? If you have a generous choice between a generous boss and a non-generous boss, which one are you going to choose? If you have a choice between a generous spouse and a non-generous spouse, which one are you going to choose? Generous people are attractive. They bring people in. They have natural community. People care about them in return for their generosity. God's word is clear. We should be tithing. We should pay taxes. We should give to the poor. And in in the New Testament, we should give beyond those things because we have been given so much in Christ Jesus. So what do we conclude from this talk? Number one, giving is a universal gift. Good, sorry, it's a universal good. Number two, we should be considerate of where we give. Don't just give to anybody. Bring it to the house of God. Give it to those who are genuinely going through a hard time and a rough patch. Tithing is a good standard. It's a start. It's a floor, not a ceiling. Churches and ministries should be supported by those who receive ministry. Beyond the tithe is absolutely the heart of God. And finally, where are you? Perhaps in this talk, a very uncomfortable thing has happened in your heart. You don't want to hear this. You want to reject it. You don't want to receive this idea that you should be giving away 10% of your income to the church. In fact, you don't trust churches. You hate institutional religiosity and religion as a whole. Well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. You probably feel that way because, I don't know, someone took advantage of you through a religious structure. And those people should be shamed. They should be condemned. But when you can find a church that preaches the gospel, that teaches the word, that has upstanding members and leaders, that has a care for each other and a genuine sense of community and loves the Lord and believes his word and trusts it, join that church, support that church, give to that church, and then give beyond that church. And God will pour back into your life blessings that money can't buy. That's the show. I hope it's been a benefit to you. By the way, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about supporting this Bible study. If you have received a spiritual blessing from this Bible study, consider supporting it through the Cash App or tmslive.com slash support. But the better way, guys, is to join the Dependables membership cl- plans. We have four tiers available for you, all kinds of gifts and benefits coming to those who sign up, particularly the legacy level I'm very excited about because I personally will be crafting some special gifts for our legacy members. What does your money do as you support this content? First, we give 10% of our income to Project Rescue, which stops sex trafficking. And then we give another 10%, so 20% in total, to the American Bible Society. Because if we have reaped material blessings from you, as those Levites did in the Old Testament, we have to give a tithe of the tithe. But we have decided in this organization, we're going to give 20%. Why? Because you cannot give God. So thank you for supporting us. Thank you for being here. The last way that you can support this content is by liking the video, sharing the video, and subscribing to the channel. And now, friends, a side note about this content. I will be leaving on Monday for the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. I will be providing some specialized content for our Dependables members, and I will also hopefully be providing some free content on the channel. So make sure that you are clicking that subscribe button right now to get notified every time we go live or we present new content. Follow us on all our social media pages and keep checking back regularly to this channel for content that is soon to come. I trust that this has blessed you. I trust it has been a worthy hour to spend with me. And I say, God bless you in Jesus' name.